heard quite a lot this week in the news about uh, cruise ships, with the cruise ship that had the fire in the engine room and uh, spent about five days out at sea with no power. So all of that in the news this week about cruise ships reminded me of a story that I once read. Supposedly this is a true story about a man who was on a cruise one time and notices an elderly lady who is on this cruise alone. And not only is she alone on this cruise, but all of the, the crew or the staff of the cruise ship seem to know her by name and seem to spend a lot of extra time and effort on her. She seemed to sort of be the center of attention. And so he thought maybe that this lady was a famous person that he didn't recognize or uh, maybe she owned the cruise ship or something. So he, he asked his waiter one night at dinner who this lady was. And his waiter responded that he didn't really know who she was. He knew her name. But the reason that all the staff was so friendly with her was because this was her seventh cruise back to back. She was taking seven cruises, all of them back to back on the same ship. And so this intrigued the man. So he goes and over and asks the elderly lady why it is she's now taking her seventh cruise back to back. And she says, she answers him right away without a moment's hesitation to say, well, a cruise is cheaper than a nursing home. She says, a nursing home costs me $200 a day. A cruise costs $135 a day. So I save $65 a day. And in addition to that, I am treated like a customer, not like a patient. She says, I, I eat all the food I want. It's wonderful food. Cruise ship food. I eat whenever I want, ten times a day if I like. They'll even bring it to my room if I want. Instead of eating that nursing home food when they say that I can eat it. And then she says, whenever anything is wrong, something's wrong in my room, a light bulb goes out, the TV's not working, all I do is pick up the phone and they're right there with a good attitude to fix it right away. If I want a new mattress, they'll bring me a new mattress. Clean sheets, clean towels every day, I don't even have to ask. There's a different show to watch every night on, on the ship. Plus I get to see all kinds of incredible places, Cancun, the Bahamas, uh, Acapulco, all these wonderful places. She says, try to do that in a nursing home. And in addition to that, hardly anybody comes to see me in a nursing home, but on a cruise ship, I meet all new people every seven days. So this is a wonderful bargain that I'm getting on a cruise ship. And then to top it all off, she says the whole, the biggest part of all is that once all this is done and I finally kick the bucket, then they'll just wrap me up in a blanket and throw me overboard free of charge. So she says, I'm getting a real deal. Now I tell that story for no other reason than to say that that lady if nothing else, had a plan. Might not be your plan. You might not want that plan for yourself, but she had a plan. It's funny, isn't it, how we all kind of divide ourselves up into two different groups in the sense of making plans. There are people that are planners and there are people that are non-planners. right? And the planners, they like order. They like to have everything planned out. They like to know what's going to happen and when. And what a planner doesn't like is a change in plan. A change in plans is the same thing as saying that my original plan was bad. And so planners don't like changes in plans. They like order. They like to know what to expect. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are non-planners. Non-planners like spontaneity. They think that plans take the fun out of everything. And that if something was planned, then it wasn't fun. Because fun and plans don't go together. And so they enjoy spontaneity while the planner enjoys order. 
Isn't that funny how we divide ourselves up that way? Now, probably most of us are not at one end of the spectrum or the other, but all of us will gravitate towards one side or the other. But you also know that the Bible informs us about how it is that we're to think about planning our life and how it is that we're to think about changes in plans that come to our lives. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're in Acts chapter 16, and we remember what the context is. Acts chapter 15 was all about this question of Gentile salvation. Could the Gentiles be saved by the Jewish Messiah without becoming a Jew? Did the Gentile need to be circumcised in order to be saved? And so you remember they had the big powwow at the Jerusalem conference, and they decided at the Jerusalem council it is, they decided that no, the Gentile does not have to be circumcised to be saved, but then they made this grand compromise of love. We will not compromise on the fundamentals. We will not compromise on the essentials of the Gospel. But when it comes to secondary matters, then we will lovingly compromise on those things that don't ultimately matter. And so they write to the church in Antioch, tell the church, no, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised to be saved, but at the same time, it is very offensive to your Jewish neighbors when you eat meat that has blood in it. So you will refrain from that, not because you have to to be saved, but because you love your neighbors, and this is a good way to compromise on something that's not ultimately significant. So they write this letter, and they make this grand compromise of love, and right after this big compromise, we find two people that can't compromise. Paul and Barnabas can't get along in the matter of Mark. They want to go on the second missionary journey, and Paul wants to leave Mark out of it, and Barnabas wants Mark to go, and they can't come to terms on that, and so they split up. Barnabas takes Mark, and he goes back to, to uh, Cyprus. And then Paul takes Silas and he goes uh, back up to Lystra and Derby through the areas of Galatia where they had been previously. Only now he goes a different route. Instead of coming from the west by sea, he's going to come over land from the east. And so they split up. God, by the way, overcomes the sinfulness of both Paul and Barnabas. He overcomes their bad decisions by His good, by making... Now his missionary force is now double. And so that brings us up to Acts chapter 16. We're going to look this morning at the first ten verses of Acts chapter 16. And we'll begin by looking at the first five verses. Let's read these verses um, together. Beginning from verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So this passage obviously revolves around this man Timothy whom we have not yet met in the story of the Acts. This is the first time that we come across Timothy. Now Timothy, as you know, will become a very important person in our New Testament. He and Paul will share a very special relationship with one another. Um, in fact, places like 1 Timothy 1 and, and uh, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul will call Timothy his son. So they share a very special bond between them. Paul sees in this man Timothy something that causes him to say, I want that man with me in ministry. In the same way that he saw something in Mark that caused him to say, I don't want that man with me in ministry, he sees something in Timothy 
that causes him to say, I do want that man with me in ministry. What did he see? He saw spiritual maturity, didn't he? He saw maturity in his faith that was evident to everybody that knew him. It said that, that he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra. And so, Timothy's faith was a mature faith that was evident to those who knew him. Later on, Paul's going to write his first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, he's going to be talking about the qualifications for pastors or for overseers. And he'll say, an overseer or a pastor must be well thought of by outsiders. And so, Timothy certainly meets this qualification. He's well thought of there in Lystra, particularly by the brothers. So he has this faith that's a mature faith. Later on in 2 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to learn a little bit more about Timothy's faith and how he came to faith in, in Jesus. It appears that his mother and his grandmother were very um, spiritually devout women. The passage here before us tells us that Timothy's mother was a Jewess and his father was a Greek or a Gentile. So his, his parents were blended. They were a blended family. But his mother, being a Jewess, was not just Jew, but she was a faithful Jew. And his grandmother as well, because they shared faith with him. They, they caused, or didn't cause him, but they led him into a relationship with the Jewish God, Yahweh. And so that was the background of Timothy. And then Paul and Barnabas come to Lystra, where Timothy is, and he hears the Gospel of the Jewish Messiah. He already believes in the Jewish God. Now he hears about the Jewish Messiah. And he believes in Jesus, places faith in Jesus. And, and then he has this profound moment. This profound moment in Timothy's life in which he sees the person who brought news to him of Jesus Christ, he sees him stoned to death. Because that's where they are. They're in Lystra, where Paul was stoned. And so he sees Paul stoned and he sees Paul suffer for the sake of the Gospel. And this has a profound effect on Timothy. But I think probably an even bigger effect was when he saw Paul come back into Lystra later that day. Remember we said that it was important that Paul came back into town for the believers that were there. And so Timothy sees not only Paul suffer for the sake of the Gospel, but he sees God being victorious over that. And that has a profound effect on Timothy. Um, Timothy will be, I think, permanently changed by this. And I think this is one of the things that fed into this man Timothy and what made him to be who he was and what Paul saw in him. Paul saw something within Timothy that caused him to want that man to be with him in ministry. And so he takes Timothy, verse 3, and he circumcises him. Now, that's sort of strange, isn't it? Because didn't Paul just win the whole circumcision debate? That was what chapter 15 was all about. And Paul and his side won the debate. No, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Is this just extraordinarily hypocritical? Well, of course it wasn't. And I think that you'll see that once we sort of think through this a little bit. The two things, I think there's two things to keep in mind as we think about Timothy and this decision to circumcise Timothy. And I think the main thing to keep in mind here is this. This was not a question of Timothy's salvation. That was the whole question in chapter 15. Do Gentiles need to be saved in, or do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? This is not a question of Timothy's salvation. He's already saved. I mean, the brothers there, they know of his faith. He is one of the body of Christ. And, and it's, it's not a question of whether Timothy is a child of God or not. This is not a question of salvation. 
This is a question of preparation for ministry. Paul takes Timothy, and in order to prepare him for the ministry that he's entering into, that's why he has him circumcised. And the reason is, Luke goes on to tell him, tell us, he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So, in order to be properly prepared for the ministry that Timothy will be engaged in with Paul and on his own later on, it was appropriate and it was wise for Timothy to be circumcised. And the reason is because Timothy was a Jew. You see, we're told very plainly that Timothy's mother was a Jewess and his father was a Greek. In the Jewish way of thinking, their Jewishness was passed on, not by the father, but by the mother. If someone had a a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, then that person was considered to be Jewish. So Timothy was considered to be Jewish, but he was an uncircumcised Jew. In the mind of a Jewish person, that was sheer blasphemy. It was bad enough to be an uncircumcised Gentile, but an uncircumcised Jew was particularly distasteful for Jewish people. And so in order to prepare Timothy to minister among both Gentiles and Jews because he was considered a Jew, Paul has him circumcised because he never was circumcised because he grew up in Lystra. Remember, Lystra doesn't even have a synagogue. Lystra was an incredibly idolatrous place. And so, although his mother and grandmother are people of faith, he nevertheless was not circumcised growing up in Lystra. And so it was considered wise to take Timothy and have him circumcised and remove a barrier that was an unnecessary barrier. It would have been an unnecessary barrier for Timothy to try to minister to Jewish Jewish people when he himself was an uncircumcised Jew. And so Paul says, this is not a matter of your salvation, this is a matter of preparing you for ministry. If Timothy had been Greek or Gentile, then it would be different. We know that because when we look over to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 3, this is in your sermon notes here, um, we see Paul talking about Timothy, or Titus. He says, even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Timothy and Titus are very similar people. They're people that Paul chose for the ministry. Only Titus is a Gentile. Timothy is a, is a um, Jew. Titus, he does not have circumcised. Timothy, he does. And so he's taken away sort of an unnecessary barrier to those that he will minister to. And so Timothy then submit to this painful circumcision as an adult. This is a day without anesthesia. Timothy is an adult. And he's going to submit to this circumcision in order to be properly prepared for ministry. But the same thing is true today, isn't it? Isn't it true that we are completely comfortable placing requirements on people entering the ministry that are not the same requirements for just Christians in general? I mean, isn't that true today? We would never ask Christians to, in order to become a Christian, you need to have a seminary degree. That's, that's ridiculous. But it is wise that in order to enter the ministry, you should have a seminary training at least, right? And so we subscribe to a similar sort of thing. This is exactly what's going on in Paul's day here. In order to enter the ministry, we have this additional requirement that will remove this barrier. And this is a painful requirement for Timothy. He will submit to this. This in a sense, unfair thing that has to be done to him. Um, But Paul can have him do this because Paul himself submitted to the same type of thing. 
Remember over in 1 Corinthians 9? Remember there, Paul is talking about his right to be supported financially by those whom he ministers to? He says, it's my right as a minister of the Gospel that those who are receiving the Gospel support me in this ministry. He says, that's my right, but I willingly give up this right in order to be a more effective minister to you. And so in a similar way, Paul is saying to Timothy, you also need to submit to something that may not be fair, and it's going to be painful, it's not going to be pleasant, but in order to minister to God's people, you submit to this. And so Timothy does submit to this to prepare himself for ministry. And so then, through the rest of that section there, they travel through the area, delivering the news that, was, that they have with the, through this letter from the church in Jerusalem, that no Gentiles, no, they don't have to be circumcised to be saved, these sorts of things. And so they received that. And in verse 5, we see that the churches were strengthened in their faith and they increased in numbers daily. Then we move on to the section here beginning in verse 6. And they went through the region of Perga and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the Gospel to them. So this is the famous Macedonian call section of Scripture. We're familiar with the Macedonian call that called Paul and his, uh, those that were traveling with him to Macedonia instead of Bithynia. This is an enormously significant passage for us as Western Christians. It's significant to us because at this moment in time, church history took a drastic change or a drastic turn. Probably most of us are not up on our ancient geography, I would imagine. But just to sort of kind of paint a a general picture for what's happening at this point. Paul is in Mysia. Mysia is at the very easternmost tip of Central Asia, what's today present-day Turkey. And to the east of Mysia was Bithynia, which is today in Central Turkey, or moving into Central Asia. So Paul wanted to go east into Asia with the Gospel. This passage turns Paul around. Instead of going east, he's going to go the other direction. He's going to go west across the Aegean Sea into a place called Macedonia. Macedonia is where the church in Thessalonica will be. The church in Corinth will be in this area called Macedonia. That's the present day um, Balkan countries. If you're familiar with that, Bosnia, Serbia, uh, Kosovo. Those nations are there, which those nations are all Eastern Europe. And then across the Mediterranean Sea from the Balkan nations, or Macedonia at this time, across the Mediterranean Sea from that to the west will be Italy and Rome. And so the direction that Paul was going was was changed from a generally easterly direction into Asia to a generally westerly direction into Europe. Extraordinarily significant for us because we know that in this day, and even to, to today, to our time today, Asia is largely pagan, overwhelmingly pagan, with uh, the the religions of of Buddhism and Hinduism. They dominate that area today. They dominated that area in Paul's day as well. 
Europe, by contrast, was for a, a long time, arguably maybe even today, but Europe was arguably largely Christian. Even just three centuries from, from this time here, Europe was largely Christian. We were settled mostly by European settlers, bringing mostly their Christian faith with them. So you can see the implications of the passage that had Paul not been rerouted to, the, to Europe instead of Asia, you can see that quite possibly the history of the world would have been very much different that would make a very big difference for, for us here. So it's a very significant passage to us today. But Paul is rerouted back um, to the west here. And I also want to bring to your attention something else in the passage that's very subtle and it's really very, very easy to miss. But I want to, do want to just call your attention to it. It comes in verse 10. And it comes in this tiny little two-letter pronoun, we. And then later on, another two-letter pronoun, us. That represents a change. Because it's the narrator speaking at that point. And this is the first time that the narrator has used first-person pronouns. Up until this point, the narrator has used third-person pronouns. They, them. At this point, the narrator changes to first-person pronouns, and he'll continue using first-person pronouns through to the, to the time when uh, Paul and Silas leave Philippi through uh, verse 17. And then there'll be another section of third-person pronouns, and then over in chapter 20, he's going to again switch to first-person pronouns when Paul comes back to Troas, which is where he is now. And then there's another section in chapter 27 when Paul is before the governor Felix that he's going to use we and us in those, those places. So three sections that are known as the we sections of Acts. What we take this to mean is that the narrator is now narrating events that he was part of. Before this, he was narrating events that he wasn't part of. But now that Paul gets to Troas, and the whole time Paul is in Troas, he's using we and us. So we take that to mean, well, Luke is the one writing this, we know. We take that to mean well, that Luke is now with them. He's, he, probably Luke lived in Troas, that's probably where he was from. And then when Paul, when, uh, Paul leaves Philippi later on, no longer is, is the narrator using we and us. So maybe Luke stayed there at the church at Philippi. Maybe Luke was the pastor at the Philippian church. We don't know. But we take this to mean that Luke is now telling us first-hand accounts, that he was with Paul during these periods of time, which is very interesting to me. I hope it's interesting to you as well. But it's not the meaning of the passage. That's, um, that's just something interesting to make note of. The meaning of the passage, I think, is, is um, much more helpful to us than that. And I, and I think the meaning for this passage comes to us in this whole idea of Paul being rerouted, of having his plans changed, as we said earlier. Paul has plans, and those plans get changed. And they get changed by God. And so that brings a whole lot of questions for us about making plans in our lives, making plans for the kingdom of God, when and how those plans get changed, and most of all, how is it that we are to know what God would have us to do and what God would have us to change? Those are questions that are real questions in your lives. I think all of us as Christians, we readily will, will admit that if we can know the will of God in our life, that is what we want to do. But the question often comes in knowing it. 
Scripture tells us very clearly what the will of God is for all people and for all children of God. Right? Places like 1 Timothy 2, verse, verse 3 and 4, Paul says it is the will of God that all people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Or places like uh, 1, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul tells us it is the will of God that all Christians would rejoice always, would uh, not cease to give praise. This is the will of God for all people. Or places like Romans 8, verse 29, that tells us that the will of God for all Christians is to increase in our Christ-likeness, right? We know that is the clear stated will of God for all people. But those things are the broader, sort of long-range will of God. Within all of that come hundreds and hundreds of decisions that all of us face in our life that it becomes quite more difficult to make a decision. What is the will of God for my career path? What is the will of God for whom I should marry? What is the will of God? Should I, um, should I work in this place or that place? Should I um, choose this path in my life or that one? How do we discern those things? And I believe that this passage speaks to us directly of those kinds of questions. And so if you've ever struggled in your life with discerning what God would have you do in this particular situation, and there is no Bible verse that seems to address it directly, then I think this is a passage that we will find helpful. So first of all, let's notice, this may seem kind of strange to even bring attention to, but I think it's worth bringing attention to. Let's, let's first of all notice that Paul makes plans. Paul has a plan. His plan is to go to, Bith to, to Bithynia. Paul doesn't go on his missionary journey flipping a coin at every crossroads he comes to. Heads I go to the right, tails I go to the left. That's not Paul's way of doing ministry. He has a plan. He's thought it out and he's engaging in a plan. And so, what this shows us, I believe, is that the Holy Spirit is capable of leading His people both spontaneously and through making plans. You know, you know um, have you ever known Christians, or perhaps you sometimes think this way, sometimes we think that God, that the Holy Spirit only leads us in spontaneous things? You know people who, who think that like that, that, that if something's planned out, then that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads in spontaneous things, spontaneous decisions, right? Even like with, uh, with preaching. You ever heard of, of, a, of a preacher who will say, you know, I was planning on preaching this message, but this morning... God changed it. And now I'm preaching this different message. Or, or sometimes preachers will even preach and, and they're deciding what to say as they're, they're preaching it, right? And sometimes people will say, now that was a Spirit-led message. As though the one that was prepared in the study wasn't. As though God is only capable of leading in a spontaneous type of decision. God is fully capable of leading His people both spontaneously and through guiding their plans. And so Paul has a plan. And he's put that plan in place. Now God changes his plan, but the fact is that, God, that, that Paul had made a plan. And the Bible informs us as Christians, the Bible informs us how it is that we are to think on things such as making plans in our life and how those plans get changed. The Bible paints for us a picture of two extremes that we're to avoid. On the one hand, places like Proverbs 6. You're familiar with Proverbs 6. It's the ant passage. Look at the ant, old sluggard. 
how the ant makes plans and works and stores its food. And that whole passage is a rebuke. It is a rebuke to the lazy Christian who refuses to make plans and refuses to work. And so that passage is saying that it is not pleasing to God that we be lazy people who don't have plans, that just sort of drift through life, taking life as it comes, refusing to plan ahead and think ahead, both for our life decisions and for the kingdom. That passage is rebuking that way of living, the way of living that just sort of goes with the current, just sort of goes with the flow. But on the other hand, the Bible also paints a different extreme that we're to avoid in places like James chapter 4. James chapter 4, you remember the, uh, the, what James says there? He says about the person who says, we'll go to this city or that city and we'll work for a year and we'll make a profit. But then James says, no, what you should say is God willing, we will go and we'll do this and we'll do that. And what James is rebuking is not the person that doesn't make plans at all. He's rebuking the person who, first of all, makes plans without consulting God but more importantly, makes plans that he hasn't consulted God for, and then refuses to allow God to change those plans or veto those plans. He doesn't give God the veto power over what he's decided to do in his life. He's going to do what he's planned to do, and he's not giving God the space to change his plans. James is rebuking that. So we see two extremes that we're to avoid. One is the person who doesn't plan their life at all, the other is the person who overplans and refuses to, to give God any authority to change his plans or doesn't seek God's approval. You know, sometimes um, we're all guilty of this, aren't we? We're all guilty of, of planning what we want to do and then asking God to bless what we've already planned. God bless my plans, assuming that what we planned was what he wanted us to do to begin with. But instead, James says, no, you must give God the authority to veto, to override what you think that you're going to do. Paul does this. Notice Paul in no way is rebuked for actually making the plans. But God does want to change those, and Paul allows God to do this as soon as he discerns that that's what God wants to do. Two extremes that the Bible tells us to avoid. I think this is all summed up actually quite nicely in places like uh, Proverbs 16, verse 3. This is in your notes. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Or Proverbs 16.9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I think that summarizes for us how the Christian is to view planning and changing those plans. Now, everything I just said, I believe we all would readily agree with. The difficulty really comes when we ask the question, how do we know? Okay, we plan to the best of our ability, seeking the counsel of God as we're making our plans, prayerfully asking Him to be part of our life, but how do we know when what we've planned is wrong and God wants us to change that? How do we discern that? Again, I think as, as Christians, we all are willing to do that, but the problem sometimes comes in knowing that God would have us to change. This passage is a clear example of Christians who discern that God would have them to change their well-made plans into something else. And I think as we look at this and we think through this, this will also be helpful for us in our lives when we face the same kinds of decisions. Hundreds of decisions in your life that there's not a verse for it. 
There's not a passage that you can point to that says, all right, this tells me to not take the job that I have to move for. Or this tells me to uh, not go back to work and instead stay home and raise my kids. But all those decisions that we face that we want to do the will of God for, but sometimes have difficulty discerning them. Let's look at what happens in this passage and how uh, Paul works through this. When we talk about God communicating His will to us in ways that are not a clear good versus evil kind of decision. When we talk about discerning God's will in those situations, I think three things come to mind in terms of how it is that God communicates to us what He'd have us to do. And those three things that come to mind are the uh, opening and closing of doors, the counsel of other believers, and a sense of peace or non-peace. Right? I think those are the three biggies that we sometimes look to to discern the will of God for decisions that aren't good versus evil kind of decisions. Right? Um, and so, how is it that God is communicating to Paul here that he would have his plans to be changed? We know that Paul receives the vision of the Macedonian waving to him, beckoning to him. But I want you to notice that that vision doesn't come until after Paul and his companions are certain that God would not have them go to Bithynia. The vision didn't come and they say, oh, wait a minute, wait, we need to stop what we're doing. They were already struggling with what God would have them to do. They already knew that Bithynia was off the table. So, how was it that Paul and his friends knew that Bithynia was off the table? Perhaps... God closed some physical doors. Right? You've heard about how Christians should go through the open doors and don't, don't try to go through the closed doors. Perhaps God had closed some physical doors. Maybe the bridge to Bithynia washed out. Wasn't going to be repaired for two more years. Maybe um, they got lost. They kept getting lost trying to find Bithynia and kept circling around back to Mysia. Maybe the road to Bithynia was very dangerous. And they tried to go, but there were some robbers that turned them back. Maybe God closed those doors in that way. We don't know. Or maybe Paul just didn't have a sense of peace about it. Thought he had peace, really didn't have peace, never was really comfortable with it, and finally they discerned that this lack of peace is God communicating to me that this is not right. Maybe. Or maybe some of the believers there at Mysia or maybe Paul's companions, maybe they said to Paul, Paul, this, this Bithynia thing's not right. It was, we're not feeling it. The Bithynia's not right. And then Paul took their counsel. We don't know. But here's what I want to point out to us. None of those ways of God communicating to you is fully trustworthy, always right, all the time, completely dependable. None of those ways. And the Bible shows us. Let's take the first one. Let's, let's take the open door, closed door kind of thing. You've heard Christians say, when you're doing the will of God, you go through the open doors and don't go through the closed doors. Sometimes. Sometimes not. Let's think of Gideon. Let's think of Joshua. Let's think of David facing Goliath. All those are, are incredible stories of God opening doors for His people to walk through. What about Jonah? who's fleeing from the will of God, and what does he find? A ship 
ready to take him to Tarshish. So you simply cannot say, I will go through the open doors and not go through the closed doors. Because that is not always reliable. Okay, well what about um, the whole peace thing? When we are doing the will of God, we should feel a sense of peace about what we're doing. I suggest to you, not always. I suggest to you that sometimes you, do, you can do the will of God without having peace about it. Sometimes you cannot do the will of God and have a complete peace about what you're not doing. Sometimes you can be faced with a choice and not have peace between either one. Think of David. As David was preparing to build the temple, you know what? David had perfect peace. He was preparing to build this temple and the passage lets us know that he had peace about what he was doing until God changed his plans. So I suggest to you that neither can we tr completely trust the, the idea of having peace or not having peace. That that is sometimes how God can lead us, but not always. That's not completely trustworthy. Well, what about the idea of receiving counsel from God's people? Scripture tells us clearly that Christians are to seek the counsel of other Christians. But is that counsel to be always completely trusted? Um, Isaiah gave some real good counsel to King Hezekiah. Nathan gave some real count, good counsel to King David. Um, Job's friends gave some real bad counsel to Job. You see, it's, it's just not always... Or here's a better example, a closer example to what we're talking about. Flip over with me to, to Acts chapter 20, 20, 21. Paul here is on his way back to Jerusalem and he comes back to the church at Ephesus. And he's talking to the Ephesian elders. He's telling the Ephesian elders, I'm headed back to Jerusalem. And, and he tells them here, Verse 22, I'm in chapter 20, verse 22, he says, I'm constrained by the Spirit. I don't know what's going to happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me whatever's going to happen to me is going to be bad. Because He's told me that I'm going to suffer a great deal. And then we go on through that section. Now in chapter 21, Paul goes on and they leave. And now we're back into another we section, by the way. Verse 7, when we, see that, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip. There's Philip again. Philip the evangelist. Who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus. We remember Agabus from chapter 11. He was the one that predicted the famine. The prophet Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. So the prophet Agabus comes, takes Paul's belt, ties himself up and says, this is an object lesson for what's going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem. Verse 12, when we heard this, we, including Luke, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go. The believers, the brothers and sisters in Christ, including Luke, are urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and yet it is God's will that Paul go to Jerusalem. You see, the counsel of fellow believers is not a completely faultless counsel. When other believers speak to you in your life, it is not the voice of God speaking directly to you. As a pastor, this is something that grieves my heart. I am grieved over the counsel that some Christians give to other Christians. Some of the things that Christians will advise other Christians in their life 
are so unbiblical that they could have come straight from the mouth of Oprah Winfrey. The counsel of Christians sometimes can be trusted, but it is not a completely trustworthy, never-take-me-wrong kind of way that God can lead us and show us His will in our lives. So, what we see here is that maybe Paul, maybe Paul didn't have peace, maybe he, God had closed some doors, maybe there was this counsel from other people thing going on, we don't know exactly what was going on, but we do know that Scripture is showing us that none of those ways are completely trustworthy. They are, they are ways that God can communicate to us, but they have to be carefully, carefully discerned. So where's the answer come for us? I think the answer comes for us in two things in this passage. The first is to look closely at this word concluded in verse 10. Luke says here, verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the Gospel to them. Here's the way I understand that. What does the word concluding speak to us of? Concluding tells us of a debate or a discussion. The word itself concluding means literally means to bring together or draw together. And when someone concludes something, it means they've drawn together the evidence. Maybe there's been a discussion. Maybe there's been a debate. Maybe there's, they've looked at evidence. But when, when you come to a conclusion, a conclusion is not a first impression. A conclusion is what you arrive at after you've considered the evidence that's available to you and you conclude this. And so they concluded that this was, would, was what God would have for them Maybe that conclusion was, part of it was, was some difficulties that they had experienced getting to Bithynia. Maybe part of it was just a, a sense of no peace. Maybe part of it was what they were hearing about Bithynia. We don't know, but they were gathering together different things and they came to a conclusion. So that tells me that when we are discerning the will of God in our lives, it is something that we must wrestle with. Just as Paul and his friends wrestled with this. It is something that we look not just necessarily at one thing, but we look at several things in our lives and we come to a conclusion based on this and this and this and this and sort of all these things come together and that's what leads us into discerning the will of God. That's what I gather from concluding. Let me illustrate this with a personal story. When I was called into ministry, I was certain that what God had for me was international missions. In fact, when I came to this church, I made everyone who were here when I came, I made everyone very well aware of the fact that our path was a path to international missions. For the time being at least, that is not what God has for us. How did I come to that decision? I honestly can't tell you. I honestly can't point to anything and say to you, this is, this is what did it for us. This is what sealed it for us. Because you know what? When, when a person applies to the International Mission Board, it's a long application process. So for, for about two years there, we were in this application process. And in that two-year process, there were times that I had perfect peace about what we were doing. And there were times that I didn't. During that two-year process, there were times 
that friends of ours were telling us, this is what God has for you. You are missionary people. And there were times that Christian friends were saying just the opposite. And during those times, there were times that doors were wide open to go overseas. There were times in which friends of mine were saying to me, come here. We have funding in place for you. We have a place for you to live. Can you come now? And there were times in which doors were slammed closed. And through that whole time, we really struggled. Does the closed door mean that we just try harder? Does the closed door mean we just get more faithful? What does that mean? Does the lack of peace mean just pray harder? Does the, what does all that mean? See where I'm going with all this? And so, I couldn't ever just say, alright, there's the answer right there. It was a process of concluding, of wrestling, that eventually the answer came to us. Again, how? I can't exactly describe to you. And so that's what I gather from what, what Luke is saying here, that they concluded this. But now let's look at the other element. And the other element is what we hadn't talked about yet. The vision. The guy from Macedonia. I mean, that's what sort of sealed it for Paul and his friends, right? That's how they knew that that's where they were to go because Paul gets this vision of this guy from Macedonia beckoning him over. Come over here and help us. Now, I'm going to go way out on a limb here and I'm going to suggest that probably most of us don't get visions from God on a daily basis. I'm going to tell you, I've never gotten a vision from God. God has never spoke to me in a vision like that. I'm not saying He can't. I'm not saying He doesn't. I'm saying that that is not God's normal way of communicating to you. So, how do we understand Paul's vision? Because this was the linchpin for Paul. How do we understand this in relation to our lives today? What, or let me put it a different way. What is the difference between you and Paul? If God spoke to Paul in a vision, but He doesn't speak to you in visions, what's the difference between you and Paul? Among other things, the big difference is that Paul lived in a time in which the Word of God was not complete. You do. And so as God is communicating to Paul in a vision, in a time before the writing of the New Testament, we are to take that to mean today, as we apply this to our lives today, we're to take that to mean that's the Word of God acting in Paul's life. That's what that's teaching us there. Paul's final decision came from the Word of God. Not in a written way, but in Paul's lifetime in a way that is equivalent in our day to the written Word of God. You see how that fits together? And so, what this tells us is this. The Word of God is your final authority on discerning the will of God, just as it was in my life. I faced that difficult decision that, that just one day it was this, one day it was that, one day it was this, one day it was that, and just it was hard to discern that. The Word of God is what finally sealed the answer. Now, the Word of God tells us that it has that ability in our lives. For example, 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who's called us in His own glory. So all things pertaining to life and godliness, all things that you need to make decisions 
They come to you through the Word of God. That does not mean that there is a verse somewhere in, in 3 Chronicles that tells you which job you should take. What that means is, Hebrews 4.12 says, the Word of God is living and active. And as you read it, you are not reading words that someone has written down. You are reading the very breath of God, the very words of God. And they can speak and communicate to you in ways that are far deeper and far more profound than words on a page. And so, as you are concluding, weighing, listening to peace or lack of peace, open door, closed door, counsel of friends, as you are weighing all those things and you are in the Word, then that is how the answer will come. How? I, I can't explain to you how and I can't tell you exactly how, but I can tell you that is how it will come. Christians who are deficient in their intake of Scripture are Christians who are incapable of discerning the will of God in their life. Because the will of God comes to them via God's Word.